This is Ashley Stone, and you're listening to The Comeback Podcast. Maxine, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. When you reached out to me and told me a little bit about your story, it was just so unique. I mean, we don't get a lot of stories like yours. And so I'm excited to just hear all your background and hear kind of what led to you coming back to the church. But before, you know, we jump into the comeback part, let's start with your story, where your background is and, you know, were you raised in the church? Tell us a little bit about that, what you did leading up to that. Sure. Well, and I'm excited to be on this podcast with you. I just recently came across it by accident. And I love that you have a whole podcast devoted to people coming back to the church, right? Yeah, it's pretty special. I think that a lot of times that comeback story is just, it's really impactful to hear somebody share what life was like without the gospel and then what was life was like coming back. So, yeah, well, I was happy to find it. And I thought, oh, I should probably talk to her. <laughs> so you yeah, yeah, my story is unusual. It really is. I was, you know, the child descendant of 18 Mormon pioneers who joined the church between 1847 and 1869 and journeyed to Utah. So that's pretty unusual to have that many ancestors. I'm like a fifth or sixth generation Mormon. So I kind of call myself 120% genetically Mormon because all of my great, great grandparents and one of their parents and one of their kids all, all were Mormon pioneers. And I'm also a fourth cousin of Joseph Smith through his mother, through the Lucy Mack line. Wow. Not a, I'm not a descendant. I'm a cousin. So Joseph and I share a grandfather. Um, That's so awesome. And then my great, great aunt. Mary was the last living person to have known Joseph Smith. So that's kind oh of my. cool. Too. Yeah. Mary Field so Garner. Cool. Yeah. What's her name? That is so cool. They wrote an article about her in the church news when, you know, before she died. And then my great, great grandfather, Ephraim Hanks is pretty well known in church history as kind of one of Brigham's right-hand men. And Deseret Book made a movie about him the same year I came back to the church, which was a cool synchronicity because I had researched his life and I have all this material for a biography on him that I haven't written, but I always loved my great-great-grandfather, Eve, and I was pretty excited that they made a movie about him the same year I came back to the church, so that was pretty interesting. It was called Ephraim's Rescue. I don't know if you've seen it or... I haven't, but I want to check it out for sure. So you're a historian. That's kind of right. what you do. Tell us a little right. bit about that. Yeah. So I'm both a historian and a theologian. I did undergraduate work and graduate work, master's work in history. And I did an undergraduate degree in gender studies. And then I've studied theology for decades and did a fellowship at Harvard. And um, so I kind of have three hats that I wear, three uh, academic lenses that I use, which are gender studies and history and theology. And I honestly feel that it takes all three lenses to really understand women's history and Mormonism and women's theology, because Mormon women have an amazing heritage that hasn't been fully understood or realized. And as I applied my lenses and skills to looking at LDS origins and history for the last 40 years, I've uncovered a lot of interesting things. 
what got me interested in history is I, I always loved actually ancient history. And I was really interested in classics and, and ancient Near Eastern history and, you know, Mediterranean Greco-Roman history. But I, I didn't really have, I didn't come from an academic background. I came from a working class background. So I really didn't have the support to study academically. I had to kind of work odd jobs and work secretarial jobs at universities in order to take classes. So I thought, well, since I can't do ancient history, I don't, I don't have the funding to pursue that. I decided to focus on Utah history, which was abundant and free. I could go to the archives, search for hours, and it didn't cost me anything. So that's how I actually got into it. Plus, I was really interested in researching the life of my great-great-grandfather, Ephraim Hanks. So those two things are what got me studying history. And I began studying LDS history in 1976 and 77. And actually, I forgot to mention this, what really got me started was my advisor at Ricks College, that's what we called it back then, Ricks College, it's BYU-Idaho. My advisor, Ruth Barris, was conducting a massive history project looking at the history of music, uh, particularly pioneer music in the Snake River Valley uh, of Idaho. And I was there, she was my mentor, she was my advisor when I majored in humanities at Ricks College. And so she invited me to be her research assistant and her TA. I was also her TA. So I worked on that project with her for two years, researching the history, the music history of Mormon pioneer music. And it was an amazing project. It's actually the largest collection, archival collection at BYU-Idaho. When she finished the project, there were, oh gosh, well over 50 boxes, somewhere between 50 and 100 boxes of material. So, so that's actually how I got my start doing LDS history was with her. And then I moved on from there, studying the Mormon trail and the life of my great-great-grandfather and the history of Mountain Dell and Park City. Mm. And then from there into studying women's history. And and I know I have your, I have your notes here and you wrote a book in 1992, um, Women in Authority, Reemerging Mormon Fe- Feminism, explored the history of Mormon fe- feminism and concepts of the divine feminine mother and women's relationship to the priesthood. Okay. Tell us a little bit more about that. Okay. So in 1987, I realized there was a lot of women's history and information about women's theology and relationship to priesthood that was showing up in private journals and conferences, but the general church didn't know about it. So I decided to research and pull together crucial material about Mormon feminism and women's relationship to priesthood and the divine feminine, the mother in heaven. And so I worked on that project from 1988 to 1992 collecting what I thought were the most crucial sources and articles. I contacted authors to write articles and I researched all of the women's publications from the Relief Society Minutes in 1842 onward to the Women's Exponent, the Women's Relief Society Magazine, and then all of the feminist publications, Dialogue and Sunstone and Exponent 2, More Women's Forum. I read everything for three and a half years and I pulled out excerpts that showed basically that feminism was not some external thing. We had our own homegrown Mormon feminism from really 1830 onward. And so I wanted to pull all that material together, but the word feminism was really controversial back in the 1980s and early nineties. 
And the book did a lot of really groundbreaking work on women of priesthood. So it was an anthology. It was a collection of different authors who I asked to contribute pieces and then material I had gathered. So when we published the book, because the book was kind of recovering or reclaiming early Mormon documents and information that wasn't generally known. And basically the book showed that we, we do have a mother in heaven and there were, there was much more interaction and discussion about her in the early church. And we also uncovered that women did have priesthood in certain specific ways. They were not ordained to male offices in priesthood, but they, they were ordained in other ways to female offices mm-hmm. and not to male offices. They were ordained to bless and heal. Emma Smith was ordained in 1830 as the elect lady, the top female office of the church, along with Joseph and Oliver as first and second elders. So they were actually the three top leaders of the church in 1830, kind of like a primitive first presidency. So we uncovered a lot of material uh, also about the temple that women actually received an, an ordination in the temple as priestess. When we pulled all that material together, we weren't we weren't claiming that we had the right answers or that, you know, that we knew everything. We were just trying to explore and try to figure out what was there because a lot of this material had been buried in archives and our academic scholarly publications, but the general church didn't know about it. Anyway, me being, you know, ambitious and thorough and <laughs> driven, I just pulled everything together that I could find. And it turned out to be a bombshell because I pulled so much material that was unknown and used the word feminism and feminist theology and, and you know, all this material about early Mormon feminism and the mother in heaven and women's relationship to priesthood. And, and basically saying, look, we found all this evidence that women did have priesthood in unique ways. You know, they were ordained to priesthood, but not to male offices. It came as a shock and that was partly my fault. I really didn't ever talk to any leaders about it or tell them what I was doing. And that was the one mistake I made was that I didn't prepare people for it or talk to any church leaders about it. I just thought it's an academic project. And I really did it um, as a textbook for the class I was teaching at the U of U. So at the U of U, I was majoring in gender studies. Actually, we called it women's studies back then. My advisor was Bella Evans, and she and I collaborated to create a class called Women in Mormon Culture. I was her TA for the class, and so we were teaching about women's history and women's texts. And so I compiled that book as an academic text to use in our women's studies class. And so we were using it in the class and then the church leaders saw it. And I I think it was just so much in one book and it was so controversial that they, they reacted and Michael and I were both disciplined by the church and excommunicated for our work in that book. You know, and if the book was published today, there'd be no problem. The church has been working on these issues for the last 10 to 15 years, really since the Joseph Smith Papers project started. And ever since the Relief Society minutes, the original minutes were put online as part of the Joseph Smith Papers. So all that information that I was pulling together back then, which wasn't known and wasn't public, is now public. (laughs) And so it wouldn't cause problems today, but back then it was kind of too much, too soon without enough warning. How did that make you feel to be excommunicated from the church because you put this together? Like, I mean, you had spent all this time studying all of this and how did that make you feel? 
Well, that's a great question. <laughs> I was disappointed. I was very disappointed that they would react that extremely because we we were not critics of the church. We were not trying to harm the church. We were trying to help. I had approached that topic to do healing work because I felt that the female feminine side of our theology and our collective religious psyche had been repressed. The women's offices and the men's offices were perfectly parallel from 1830 to 1844, parallel. They were gendered, but they were equivalent, equal level and parallel. And we could see that women had all of this authority and equality that had been forgotten and lost. Things were changed after Joseph Smith died and the, the elect lady, lay ministry, the Relief Society and the temple. The, the texts were changed, the ordinations were changed. So we could see all of this. And anyway, so I was, I was just really disappointed. I didn't feel personally hurt because I had actually been kind of inactive for 10 years. I had been really frustrated with women's status in the church. When I came home from my mission, I served a mission in 1978 to 80 in Florida when it was the pivotal state for the ERA battle. So my whole mission was about Sonia Johnson and the ERA. And I came home really frustrated and disappointed about women's status in the church. So I had gone kind of inactive, but I kept researching. And so when I was excommunicated in 1993, I was actually inactive in the church. And so I didn't feel like it hurt my church membership or me personally, but I was just really disappointed that they would be so fearful and rejecting of this history. We were just honest historians. We just, I just wanted to help bring back lost knowledge about what the restoration really was. It really was giving women equality in the kingdom of God. And we had lost this information in other words, our origins were better <laughs> than we thought. And mm -hmm. but our church is actually far more egalitarian and empowering of women than we thought. And so I thought I was helping, you know, and so I was just really, really disappointed that we weren't seen as helping. <laughs> and the other thing was, even though I was inactive at the time, so it didn't have an impact on my job or on my family life or anything, I was single. Uh, it didn't have a big impact on me, but it did on the others in my book who were excommunicated. There were a few others who got excommunicated as well, and it was devastating for them. And Michael Quinn, who had contributed the big landmark article in the book as a historian, a PhD historian, he, he was blacklisted. He had to leave BYU. So it had devastating effects for him, and I felt really bad about that. I felt tremendous guilt about that because I had talked him into writing this article and being in the book and then it got him excommunicated. But you know, it was a very different time back then. It's very different today. The church is so engaged in public scholarship and working with all of these topics. And I just, I will add that there's been a lot of healing. The church invited him to come and work with the historical department back in 2011 to work with them on the topic of polygamy and on his research on that. And then the church also really liked his work on the financial history and the church newsroom quoted Mike and his book, Origins of Power, 
the volume three, which talked about the financial history of the church, they quoted him and they quoted his research on the financial history in 2019. So he did have some major healing moments with the church, but there is still a lot that just hasn't been healed from 1993. The reason I'm talking to you today is that this month is the 30th anniversary of September 1993, when a group of us were excommunicated all in the month of September, and we were called the September 6th. And so it's been 30 years later, and there is still, even though I found healing and Michael found some healing and reconciliation, not totally, but he did find reconciliation with the church in other ways, but there's still a lot of healing that hasn't happened that I would like to see happen. I would like to see more healing um, because it it left a lot of scars in people's lives that are still there. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that you were working on this so long ago when now there are a lot of topics that have been brought up specific to this research. And so I'm really curious to know, I mean, so, so you got excommunicated from the church and then you started exploring other faiths. You joined, you know, a different uh, Christian church. You studied ministry, clergy. Tell me more about that. Tell me more about that faith journey outside of the church and what that looked like. Okay, great. Yeah. After excommunication, I had always loved Mormonism so much, even though I was frustrated with the status of women. That was my one issue with the church, really. So I decided to go up and try to find a Christian church that valued women and valued Mary Magdalene and valued the divine feminine, especially wisdom, Sophia. And so I went searching for about two or three years, really, from 1995 and 96. And I found a Gnostic Christianity. And there was a group in Salt Lake, which I couldn't believe. But Gnostic Christianity comes from the early apocryphal Gnostic scriptures that you've probably heard about when the Da Vinci Code came out and everybody was talking about that. But basically, I thought to myself, where can I go after being excommunicated from Mormonism? Because I wasn't interested in Protestant Christianity because the Mormon experience and, and tradition was based on the idea of visionary spiritual restoration rather than partaking in Protestant tradition. So I thought, well, where can I go? Because I really loved that premise of a restoration of early Christianity and through vision and spirituality rather than sort of taking your authority from the, the Protestant tradition. That was another reason why I went looking for a, some kind of mystic Christianity. And I had always really loved early Christianity. Like I said, I originally wanted to major in ancient history and particularly early Christianity. I'd always felt a really strong personal connection to early Christianity, the Jesus movement, the New Testament. So when I found Gnostic Christianity, I couldn't believe my luck because that's early Christianity and they have all these texts, hundreds of texts, scriptures from that time period. And they revered Mary Magdalene and the divine feminine wisdom, Sophia, and the ordained women. So I thought I've landed in heaven. So I went there because I really wanted to explore more about early Christianity because Mormonism had 
claimed and exerted to be this restoration of early Christianity. So I thought I have no place else to go except early Christianity. And so I really immersed myself in study of early Christianity and Gnostic texts and Gnostic Christianity for 15 years. And I studied and read all the texts. I was baptized into a Gnostic Christian church tradition. I actually worked with two bishops, a male bishop in Los Angeles and a female bishop in the Bay Area, because I was really interested in both of their churches. So I actually worked with two. I was inducted into two Gnostic churches and worked closely with those two bishops to learn everything I could about early and Gnostic Christianity. And it was an amazing journey, all that I learned. I also did a lot of training with traditional priesthood and serving in a chapel and liturgy, Christian liturgy, the, the Christian calendar and the holy days and seasons on the calendar. And I also studied interfaith ministry and I served on the interfaith roundtable for the Olympics. So from 1996 until 2011, when I came back to the church, I was just very much involved in Gnostic and early Christianity and also interfaith ministry. And I took chaplain training from a wonderful man at the VA hospital who, who took me through the chaplain program. And so I just kind of immersed myself in uh, priesthood and clergy studies and ministry studies and chaplaincy and just getting all the training and learning that I could get. One of the things that I love is that you are searching for truth outside of the church. What did you, I mean, during this time, what did you think of your specific testimony of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Like you're exploring all of the truth that can be found outside of the church, which obviously there is a lot of truth outside of the church and a lot of beautiful uh, practices and a lot of beautiful traditions outside of the church. But what did you feel during this time? Did you feel like you were missing the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? You know, tell me about that. That's a brilliant question. Very insightful because I did, and I didn't think I would. I loved my path and I loved the Gnostic path, which is all about the inner uh, formation and inner ordination. And it's a solitary path where you are supposed to be focused on your direct connection to God and finding your inner path. And it was very demanding. It was, it really forced me to find my own connection to God in a very, very powerful way. And, and so I really felt like I'd landed where I needed to be. And I really didn't think I would ever come back to the LDS church. But what surprised me was the deeper I went into my study of early Christianity and Gnostic Christianity, the more I found the LDS church there. And the more I saw what the LDS church had in fact restored or revive. It blew me away. It blew me away. And what I found was that when I was, and I loved the, I love the Gnostic churches. I love the people I worked with. I learned so much, but they had a more traditional form of priesthood, even though it was focused on the inner path, it was still, you go through ordinations and then you become the priest and the deacon and the bishop. And then the congregants are just there to, you know, you're the intercessor, you're, you're performing the mass and the services. 
And I went through minor ordination and formation, but when I got to sort of the diaconate where you enter and become deacon and priest, I stopped and held back for a couple of reasons. I really felt that the early Christianity and the Jesus movement was really about discipleship and the equality of a lay ministry, the democratic workings of the spirit in a lay ministry of disciples. And I just felt like, oh, you know, for me, the true church is a lay priesthood, a lay ministry of disciples with the democratic workings of the spirit. And I realized that's what Mormonism is. That's what the LDS church is. And in fact, it has the grandest, most amazing lay ministry of any church I looked at. And I visited a lot of other churches. I investigated other churches. I worked with other ministers on the Interfaith Roundtable. And I was blown away by the scope and power of the LDS lay ministry and how it does evoke the early Jesus movement with his disciples. And there were so many other aspects that I found. I noticed that that with, with Jesus and his disciples, they talked about both an inner church and an outer church. In a way, he talked about how, you know, to others I teach in parables, but to you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom, you know, talking to his disciples. And so he was kind of, you know, operating on two levels, on a public level of parables and then a private a level of inner teachings. That's exactly what Joseph Smith restored, an out, outer and inner church where we have sacrament meeting that's open to everyone and we have relief society and priesthood where you learn and get to have mirroring and mentoring uh, same gender mentoring but then we have the temple and the temple takes you into the higher and inner mysteries of that solitary relationship with god and your ascent you know back to the presence of god and so i thought that was amazing also, LDS church sacrament meeting really recreates the early house churches. As I read and studied about the early house churches, and they would meet in people's homes, uh, beginning with the mother of Peter. <laughs> Peter's mother was one of the early house churches. And then the Bethany sisters, Mary and Martha of Bethany, they were always meeting there at their home. In those early house churches, they had the owner of the house, like Lydia, the woman who had a house church in her, her house, uh, and others. So the owner of the house was the host or the episcopos, the bishop. The servants of the owner were the diaconos or deacons. And whoever read the letters, the, the text, the sacred text was the presbyter or priest. So you had these who would also um, assist with the communion, the priests and the deacons. Well, LDS sacrament meeting recreates the house church in, in a church building. We have the bishop, the episcopos, the overseer, and then we have the priests, the presbyters, reading the sacred prayer and blessing the sacrament. And then we have the servants, the deacons, you know, sharing it. It's an exact format of the early house church. The other thing that amazed me, I had gone to, to find a church that revered, you know, the divine feminine and also Mary Magdalene. There are so many other aspects too, I should mention. It's amazing to me how the LDS church I realized is like a modern Gnostic or mystic visionary Christianity. The LDS church is different than other contemporary modern Christianities. And we're often criticized for that because it's based on vision and revelation and the personal relationship with God and having a direct relationship with God and receiving personal revelation. Well, that's what Gnostic Christianity was. And that's what it, all of the Gnostic texts are talking about that, well, two things. 
that we are the offspring of God. We have the divine spark within us. We are, our core self, our spirit is made of the same stuff that God is made of. We are divine and that we are supposed to go through initiation and, and spiritual formation to bring that forward and to recognize our relationship to the divine. So what I was finding in all the Gnostic texts, you can find in the DNC and Doctrine and Covenants and in Joseph Smith's final sermon, the, the King Follett funeral sermon, they're saying the same things, that we are divine and that we are like God and we are to develop that relationship one-on-one -on -one through personal vision and revelation. And that we are to learn to ascend and return to the presence of God. And we are to cultivate this relationship, this spiritual connection, this knowing or gnosis. That's what gnosis is in Gnostic tradition, is knowing the divine within you and knowing that it, it is one. It is the same thing as what God is made of and, and to learn directly through that spiritual relationship. And I realized, wow, you know, the church restored that too. The church restored all of these key elements and the divine feminine. Other Christian churches do not have a divine feminine other than Mary in, in Catholicism and maybe just very, very rare examples. We, we have this profound doctrine of the divine feminine that is there. We also have a doctrine of several gods, the Elohim, the council of the gods that you find in the book of Abraham. And that's in early Gnostic texts. The, the council of the aeons, they are the Elohim. It's the same idea. And I could go on forever. So the way that we revere the mother in heaven, specifically Sophia wisdom, because it's wisdom who Joseph goes to and who leads him to the first vision. And he cites wisdom as having inspired him and leading him to the first vision. And Joseph says in his journal, I found an entry where he describes wisdom as female, feminine. He uses she, her to describe wisdom. And he cites wisdom in his four main versions of the first vision. Mm -hmm. So wisdom is there at the genesis of Mormonism. And what's interesting is the text, the apocryphal text, the wisdom literature that I looked at describe wisdom and describe her role. And they say that wisdom maketh us friends of God and prophets and she leadeth us to God. Joseph Smith's experience, his story about seeking wisdom and being led to the grove and led to God is an exact match to what those apocryphal texts say about wisdom. And I realized there's wisdom at the origin of Mormonism. This church that reveres wisdom I'd been looking for was there that the LDS faith had restored precious truths that had been lost that are there in Gnostic Christianity. And one last thing is Mary Magdalene. Gnostic Christianity really reveres her as an apostle and the first witness of the risen Jesus. Well, she's there in early Mormonism too. And it's really interesting how Joseph Smith compared the sisters working on the Kirtland temple and making the veils and hanging the veils. He compared them to Mary Magdalene. He equated them with Mary Magdalene and those early sisters, people don't know this, but it's there in the documents. Those early sisters in Kirtland saw themselves as witnesses of Christ and female apostles. And they, they saw themselves, and this is in Eliza R. Snow's comments and quotes, that they were restoring the ancient order of female disciples. Mm. So 
I just saw so many things. And I thought the church that I went off looking for was there the whole time. And I knew I had to come back. I had to come back. Plus I had a spiritual experience. I was reaching the end of my 13 years at Holy Cross Chapel. And I was praying about where am I going to go for my second sabbatical? Because my first sabbatical, I had gone on a fellowship to Harvard Divinity School at, at year seven. And I was thinking, I'm ending my 13th year. So where am I going to go for year 14? And the answer came so clear and so powerful. You need to return to the LDS church. That's what you need to do now. That's amazing. So tell us a little bit about what it was like, you know, when you, when you first came back and getting rebaptized and all of, all of that. You know, it was interesting. It was such a spiritual call. And I didn't know how it was going to work out. I didn't know. I didn't even know how to do it. I hadn't been active in the LDS church for like 28 years because I was inactive for 10 years. And then I was excommunicated and, and out for another 20. I, I was talking to a friend of mine about it. And I said, you know, I feel like it's time for me to come back to the church, but I don't really know how to go about it. I don't even know where to start. And she said, oh, oh, that's wonderful. And she went home and she didn't tell me, but she wrote to the first president. She wrote to President Eyring because he had been our professor at Rick's College. She was my roommate at Rick's College back in the 70s. And we had taken Pearl of Great Price from him and we loved him. So she went home and wrote to President Eyring and said, you probably don't remember me, but Maxine and I were your students back in 1976. And she's ready to come back to the church. Is there any way you could, you know, help with this? And he wrote back to her and thanked her. He said, thank you so much for writing this letter. I will contact her bishop and state president and see what we can do. And so it all just went from there. I have to say that I was in an unusual situation. I'm a feminist theologian who was excommunicated and I'd been a Gnostic Christian for 15 years. I didn't know where to start. And my bishop and state president were just the most beautiful, wonderful people. And we all got together and we were all didn't know really how to <laughs> approach this. So we prayed together and we turned it over to Christ. We turned it over to God to lead us and tell us that was the beautiful thing about it that we all just felt like, okay, yeah, there's a format here for us to do this, but let's all just turn this over to God and see what God tells us. And it was beautiful. It was amazing. And we were led spiritually, you know, every step of the way because we let Christ, the living bridge, be the bridge between us. We didn't presume to come from our own perspectives. You know, I was saying things like, well, you know, I was excommunicated. Do we need to go back and revisit all of that? And they said, no, no. All we care about is your relationship with Christ. Tell us about your faith and your relationship with Christ and with God. And so I did. And we just turned it over to God and prayed. And then it was beautiful. It just unfolded. The thing that I think was beautiful about it, and this was this is what's hard for a lot of my friends and a lot of feminists to understand, it's like, was I recapitulating? Was I surrendering? Was I giving up my feminism? No, they never asked me to recant or give up anything. And I told them, I'm a feminist theologian. I'm a chaplain. I've got all this research on women and priesthood. They said, yeah, we know, we know women have priesthood in the temple. The church isn't really talking about that, but we know women have priesthood in the temple. So you're fine. And no, if you're a chaplain, that's great. You can be a chaplain and be a member. And they were just so great. And What's interesting is that I knew that we were exploring something that was beautiful and new and healing, 
that we were exploring a new relationship between feminists and church leaders. Mm -hmm. How to do that, how to do that in a new way. I mean, they were just the most amazing people, you know, but we, we were both open, you know, they were so supportive and I truly saw them as my brothers. They were like pillars. They were so loving and so kind and it was just utterly healing. And we had spiritual experiences together that I can't deny. And they knew, and I knew, and we both said, there's a higher power here guiding all of this. And this is supposed to happen. I just wanted to say that it is so interesting to see how people think that, you know, feminism does not fit in the church or maybe being a member of the LGBT community does not fit in the church or, you know, being a divorce woman does not, there's all of these different scenarios that don't seem to fit, you know, exactly their idea of who belongs in the church. But the truth is it is not about all of these different factors. It's truly about finding a relationship with Christ and heavenly father. And if you put that first, everything else can just, it will work itself out. And I think it's so interesting and just so fascinating to see how you found all of these beautiful pieces to feminism in the church and how you belong and how you you have a place here and it just, wow. I, it is so fascinating to hear. It's, I remember reading this book called educated. I don't know if you've heard of it about Yeah. It. Oh yeah. Yeah. And one of the lines in the book that just popped into my mind that is, I remember her saying there is no place for a feminist in the church. I remember that was one of the lines in the book. And so hearing you find this place of belonging and how you've come to terms and felt peace and felt called to come back is so fascinating and so incredible. Thanks so much because it's an emotional topic. It's hard because I have so many feminist friends who are so dear to me and I've made the journey with them. And they feel so outside and so rejected. And God called me to come back and open doors for me that surprised me. And that I didn't open myself and it wasn't due to any, I'm still me, 100% Maxine. You know, I have not changed. And yet these doors opened. And I, it's painful to see how hurt and alienated so many people feel And I know that I was called to come back to help the church heal and to help heal what happened in 1993. The spirit made that very clear to me that you need to go back and bring this full circle and, and heal it. Now you, you know, cause I was inspired to do that book. I never recanted. And I told all the leaders, I don't take anything back that I said in that book, that book was, we were inspired and led to do that. It was both scholarly and spiritual and, and they were fine. They were, they were like, no, you don't, that's fine. You know, it's like, why can't we, why can't we heal this? Because feminism is 
core, it's there in Mormonism from the beginning. We have our own homegrown feminism and our own, we have our own ministry and our own female priesthood. And women were given the vote in the church in 1830, 18 years before the Seneca Falls Conference happened in 1848. You know, we have so much equality there that we haven't seen, but I, it, it was painful when I came back to see so many of my friends pained and worried that I, I had somehow forsaken them or forsaken feminism, which I didn't at all. I came back to normalize feminism and feminist theology and normalize being myself and to help create healing, to help continue to bring forth this historical information that we've kind of lost. It's painful because there's a lot of misunderstanding. And to this day, there's a lot of that early feminism and feminist theology that we haven't seen as a whole as a church yet. But the thing is, I see it. I see it there. I saw it there because I'd researched it for 30 years and I saw the Gnostic mystic Christianity there. And I thought, okay. And I really felt called to come back and help us see it, help us see what we've got because what we have in the LDS restoration, and I'll probably start crying is so precious, Ashley. It is so beautiful. It is the fullness. It is the initiation path, the ascent between our own soul and God who gave us life and knowing that we belong and we are one. And I just want to help bring this realization of what this tradition really is, what the LDS restoration really is. It's so much more powerful and beautiful and empowering than we have realized. But that knowledge and that full recognition is still coming forward and it takes time. I have a lot of patience and a lot of ability to just work with where it's at. But at the same time, I'm not interested in imposing secular ideas or secular trends onto the church at all. I'm interested in helping us excavate and recover what is so unique and beautiful and godly and inspired and empowering about our tradition it's amazing it's amazing you know and so i know that there's a process unfolding where we're recovering and learning more and more about our own origins and where we need to do a lot of healing work and we need to learn our ministry skills and learn how to minister to each other better by not preaching to each other or judging each other but true ministry and chaplaincy is holding a safe space for another person to process what they're going through. So I'm working on a book about ministry. We have so much in this tradition that's there that we aren't seeing. And I just want to help us see it. And then I want to help with the healing. I want to help heal relationships. And I put my arms around my LGBT brothers and sisters. And I tell them, if you can't go to your ward, you come to my ward. My ward over in Glendale, we welcome everybody. They welcome biker dudes. You know, half the guys are wearing lava lavas, you know, they're Polynesian. <laughs> I can wear pants and teach Sunday school. I mean, my ward really welcomes everybody. Homeless people wander in and we help them. That's the Church of Jesus Christ. That's the lay ministry. My <laughs> ward functions. That's what we should be. I, I'm just focused on healing. I'm just focused on ministering to whoever needs it and really trying to live what I see in our amazing tradition and really trying to help people grasp how amazing this church is and that it's amazing. It's amazing what this church, how much it accomplishes globally 
how much it provides for people. We yeah. just we just need to catch that spirit. And the last thing I'll say about that is when I came back to the church, you know, I asked how I felt and how it felt. I had been serving in a private chapel for 15 years, you know, or 13 years. And when I came back into the ward and sat there and felt the spirit of the body of Christ in that ward, I just started sobbing. I couldn't stop crying because it felt like I was immersed in an ocean of just love and light because the body of Christ is so alive in Mormonism and in sacrament meeting. It's, and sure, there are speakers who share things that I don't agree with, or they might see things differently than I do. But I realized everybody's on their own path, or they're at their own stage. I came back to experience spirituality of a group of people who love God and who are gathered to have a spiritual experience together. Yes. I don't judge the fact that somebody has a different interpretation of Joseph Smith or the Doctrine and Covenants or women's relationship to priesthood than I do. I don't judge that. They are where they are. I'm there for them. They're there for me. I minister to them, to members of my ward. They minister to me in so many ways. I can't even tell you things they've done for me and things I've done for them. I'm there to minister and share in the shared spiritual communion that we have together. I, I'm not there to discuss or disagree about political views or interpretations of the church because you can find disagreement about doctrine or politics or God or the church anywhere you go at a scholarly gathering at a family reunion, <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm there to experience the, the collection of souls gathered together as a body of Christ. And boy, do I feel it every Sunday. There've been times during COVID when I was watching church on zoom and there were times when you know, I had a really hard week with people criticizing me or encountering people who hated the church or people who were attacking me. And every Sunday I would go and tune into church and I would just feel that body of Christ and that collective spirit just wash over me and heal me every time. I think it's interesting because who would have thought that an excommunication from the church would lead you on such a spiritually edifying journey, you know, yeah. and where you end up back. And it's like, I, I noticed this in almost every single episode where it's such a beautiful illustration of how God can work all things to the good of those who love him. And I mean, it's just fascinating to see how you have had this experience that has brought you full circle back to where you are today. And I just appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing your incredible testimony with listeners and with me. I'm so excited for everyone to hear this because you are just such an amazing woman. So thank you so much for taking this time with me. Oh gosh. Thank you, Ashley. And that again, you're so insightful. That's beautifully said. It really is. And I just really appreciate that you do this podcast and I appreciate your questions and your comments. There is such a need for us to look at what we have and how beautiful and amazing it is to focus on the positives of the LDS restoration. Of course, there are negatives. Of course, there are problems historically. Of course, there are problems in the contemporary church. We're human beings. Nobody can tell me anything that I don't already know about the problems in the church. Right. <laughs> but 
too many people ignore the positives and the beauty and the light and the love and the divine that's there. And I'll, I'll tell you, the divine presence of Christ and the father and the mother are there in this church. They are yes, there. They are 100%. I agree with that. Yeah. Love it. So thank you. Yes. Thank you, Maxine. Um, thank you so much. It has been so fun hanging out with you on, on zoom. <laughs> well, it's been a real treat for me. Thanks for having me. Of course. Hey guys, first off, I want to give you a heartfelt thank you to all of you that support the podcast. We wouldn't be able to get this message out without all of your help. So thank you so much. I've had a few questions come in from people that aren't on social media. So I just wanted to let you guys know that we do have a website. It's www.comebackpodcast.org. You can find all of our episodes here. Um, there's a list of our book club selections. And you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Thanks again. We love you guys so much.